Gaius Julius Caesar is one of the most famous figures in history. War general, statesman, and dictator, his life and death led Rome into a new age, and his impact has left ripples throughout history we still feel today. There were many who helped Caesar become the man he would be. Names nearly as well known as his own. Pompey, Crassus, Brutus, Antony. Men who fought by his side on the field or against him on the Senate floor. But what about when Caesar took off his armor and laurels? In the home of Caesar, four different women waited, at four different eras of his life. By his side as the hopeful boy, the errant upstart, the rising star, and the budding tyrant, their lives seemed small in comparison, eclipsed and forgotten. In turns, they were the nobody, the doomed, the shamed, and the prophet. But before all that, they were Cositia, Cornelia, Pompeia, and Calpurnia. I'm not here for the grand schemes, and now neither are you. Long history very short, I'm Alana and this is Little Slights, where I discuss the women who lived and died in the shadows cast by history's limelight. Let's talk about the three and a half wives of Julius Caesar. Cositia lives in obscurity, and some would call her lucky for that. She was the daughter of an equestrian family in Rome. Equestrian here does not mean they rode horses, although horses were involved in their history, but that they were of a class in Roman society that was based on how much property they had. The Cositi, her family, were plebeians, meaning they were of the general citizenry, as opposed to the patricians, who had their roots in the original ruling class families of Rome. Translated to modern times, this means that Cositia grew up relatively wealthy and upper class, but perhaps not a one-percenter. As a woman of Rome, Cositia was a recognized citizen, free to own property and businesses, but she could not vote or hold office. And her future was entirely in the hands of her closest male relation, be that her father, her older brother, or her husband. Cositia had no say when she found out that she had been recommended to Julius Caesar as a wife by Julius's father, Gaius. She only had the opinion of her own father to follow, and he said yes. It's unclear why Gaius Caesar might have suggested the match. His family, while not particularly influential at that time, were infinitely more important in the grand scheme of things than the Cositi. But it is possible that it was the wealth that attracted Gaius to the match. After all, prestige then, as it is now, can always be bought. At the age of 15, Julius Caesar assumed his toga virilis, the white toga for Roman boys who had reached manhood. He was ready to be an adult, and that meant his marriage to Cositia could now go forward. But did it? Cositia is the greatest mystery of Caesar's wives because her inclusion in that list is up for heavy debate. While she was originally assumed to be his actual first wife, doubt has since been cast on some translations of contemporary sources. Both the Caesar and Cositi families issued coins stamped with Cositia's face inscribed with Uxor Caesaris, meaning wife of Caesar, but historians puzzle over some of the terminology used for the circumstances of their marriage. Historian Plutarch ignores her, but he does acknowledge her place, while more modern historians argue that her place doesn't even exist. Complicating things is the arguments on verbiage and word choice. Does break in the text here refer to a marriage or just an engagement? This text here calls Pompeia his third wife. That has to mean that someone had to come before Cornelia, her predecessor. 
It's a mess of educated guesswork at the words of men long dead. But what of Cosetia, the actual person? She had to have been very young, perhaps a year older or younger than Caesar's own 15. Julius was likely not a choice of her own making, few women were so lucky, but she could take comfort in the fact that the young man showed promise, that her future might be secure, and that her children would have an upbringing of wealth and privilege like she did. But then, in 85 BC, Gaius Caesar died. Suddenly, Julius was the head of his family and in control of his own life, just in time for the incoming civil war between his uncle, Gaius Marius, and Lucius Cornelius Sulla. Marius was gathering allies, one of whom was Lucius Cornelius Cinna, an incredibly powerful politician of the time, consul of the Roman Republic, and father to a beautiful 14-year-old girl named Cornelia. Caesar needed alliances, and the Cosetia money could no longer make up for their lack of connection. Cosetia was cast aside, engagement broken or divorced, and consigned to a footnote in history, only relevant to the discussion when it pertains to the order of Caesar's wives. We don't know when Cosetia was born, or even when she died, though she did perhaps pass away less than a year after her divorce in 84 BC in Pisa. But while history will remember her as a woman just barely brushed with greatness, in all likelihood, Cosetia was unaffected by the change in her fortunes. The separation was pragmatic for Caesar, and Cosetia lived in a time where elite marriages were pragmatic above all else. She took back her dowry and left the house of Caesar, and it was done. Being a divorcee rather than a bride might have even improved her chances of influencing her own future, having gotten just a little bit out from under the thumb of her father, and a new marriage would have come soon enough. Her life went on, as normal as a Roman woman's could be, and if she lived to see Caesar's meteoric rise, the future she might have had with him probably seemed as remarkable to her as it is to us. That is, not at all. Ah, Cornelia. Dearest, devoted, dead Cornelia. Cornelia, daughter of Lucius Cornelius Cinna and Aenea, his wife, was born around 97 BC in Rome. She was the youngest of three, elder brother Lucius and sister Cornelia. Yes, two Cornelias. It was a very popular name. Our Cornelia was known as Cornelia Minor within her personal sphere. To Rome, she would have been known as Cornelia Cinni, sometimes shortened to Cinilla or Cinna's Cornelia. Cinna, her father, was a praetor for most of his life and had fought in the Social War of 91 BC. He was a son of one of the greatest patrician houses of ancient Rome, the Gens Cornelia, and his children were raised as future elites, including his daughter. Their star rose even further when Cinna was appointed consul in 87 BC, opposing and defeating Lucius Cornelius Sulla, who had been consul at that point in time and was now deeply unpopular with the lower classes of society. Sulla had most likely allowed Cinna's election to consul to show there was no ill will towards those who had opposed him during his march on Rome in 88 BC to retake the city from Gaius Marius, but his trust only went so far. He made Cinna swear loyalty to him after he won the election, but though Cinna gave his oath, he was not inclined to uphold it. Almost immediately, Cinna tried to act against Sulla's supporters and charged Sulla with some kind of crime. He was chased out of the city for these efforts, but he returned, with Gaius Marius in tow, and both men were elected as consul the following year. 
However, Marius died not 17 days later, leaving Rome to be ruled under Dominatio Cinni, or the domination of Cinna. Cornelia was now the daughter of the most powerful man in Rome, and just recently her father had supported the nomination of his ally Marius's nephew, Julius, to the role of Flamen Dialis, or High Priest of Jupiter. Julius Caesar had to break away from his former partner Cosatia, leaving him unattached, and Cornelia, with her good name, good breeding, and hefty dowry, was the perfect choice for his new bride. The two met and married sometime in 84 or 83 BC. Cornelia would have been around 14 years old, Caesar 17. The marriage had scarcely begun when Cornelia's father, Cinna, was struck down by a soldier's mutiny slash riot in 84 BC. Sulla, who had been building support and gathering allies both abroad and in Rome, began making his way back to his homeland to march once again on the capital. By 82 BC, he was back in control of Rome, appointed dictator, and ready to take his revenge. He proscribed, a fancy word for executed, 1,500 nobles within months of his restoration to power, and more were to come. And who else should be directly in his path but the children of Cinna and the nephew of Marius? Caesar's connections and his unrivaled ambition made him a target, but Sulla wasn't a complete monster, at least in Caesar's case. Instead of killing him, Sulla stripped Caesar of his position, his inheritance, and Cornelia's dowry. To add insult to injury, he had one more demand. Divorce Cornelia. The Caesar that had left Cosatia would surely leave Cornelia too, yes? It was only practical. But Caesar refused. Perhaps someone trying to dictate his life to him made him obstinate. Perhaps spiting the tyrannical Sulla any way he could gave him joy. Or perhaps Caesar was in love with his young wife and refused to set her aside. Likely, it was a bit of all three. In an ironic, cruel twist, the only way to save their marriage meant they had to separate. Later that year, Cornelia saw her husband disappear into the night as he fled Rome to escape Sulla's wrath. She would not see Caesar for over three years. It was a momentous loss to both teens— Cornelia, her husband, and Caesar, his wife, as well as prime opportunities to progress and move up the ladder of Roman society, all to keep each other. What all sounds very romantic to us was likely at times lonely, at times frightening, and at times dreadfully dull for Cornelia. Caesar had found the silver lining in this dark period of his life. Losing his priesthood meant he was now allowed to serve in the army, which he did so, with gusto, for several years. Cornelia may not have been so lucky. She kept to her duties, as was expected of her, guarding and maintaining the household as her husband was meant to guard and maintain Rome. She was faithful and, in all likelihood, fond of Caesar. Why wouldn't she be? Even if he was not appealing in looks or personality, which he likely was, here was somebody willing to go to any lengths on her behalf. But her dowry was gone, her claims to her family's estates torn away from her, and she was married to a man of no position whom she hadn't seen in years. News likely trickled down to her that Caesar had caught malaria, that Caesar had been captured but set free, but it wasn't until 78 BC that the man himself would appear back in her life. Lucius Cornelius Sulla's threat against Caesar had been lifted for years, thanks to intervention from Caesar's powerful maternal family, the Aurelis. But his mere existence was enough to make Caesar leery, and it wasn't until his death in 78 that Caesar felt it safe to come back home. 
He and Cornelia started over in a small home in Sabura, a lower-class district in Rome. Caesar built a reputation for himself as an orator of no small talent and a legal advocate who went after his opponents without mercy. The couple had a child in 76 BC, who they named Julia. Julia was scarcely a year old when her father left across the Aegean Sea to study rhetoric on the island of Rhodes. On the way, he was kidnapped by pirates. He eventually negotiated his release, but just as soon as he was back, he was gone again, called away with the military to fight in Asia. This was a pattern that would repeat for the rest of Cornelia's life. In addition to his long absences, Caesar also likely had many mistresses. Although his most famous conquests would not come until later, he was a well-known womanizer. It was Cornelia's job to look the other way, which she did. And over the near 14 years of their marriage, Caesar and Cornelia would spend perhaps seven of them actually together. But overall, it seemed to be a happy marriage. Cornelia faithful and supportive, Caesar doting on both wife and daughter as he rose through the ranks. When he returned to Rome from his adventures abroad, he was appointed military tribune, the first step to a brighter future. In 69 BC, he was elected quaestor, one of 20 public officials who acted as assistants to consuls. Most were sent abroad to aid their superiors, and Caesar was no exception. He was all set to head to Hispania on the Iberian Peninsula the next year. But then, tragedy struck. Cornelia, Caesar's beloved wife, died, possibly due to complications from childbirth. She wasn't even 30. Caesar had just delivered a stunning eulogy at the funeral of his aunt Julia, who had died some months prior. Julia had been a respected matron of Rome, and a grand funeral oration for these deceased wasn't uncommon in that time period. What was uncommon, however, was to perform these same rites for a young woman, such as Cornelia. But that was just what Caesar did. The crowd was moved by Caesar's speech, and by such a touching display of respect and honor from the widower to his deceased wife. It would be pretty unfair of me to say his intentions and emotions weren't genuine, but one must remember the opportunity that lay in spectacle. Caesar certainly never forgot. Quote Plutarch, Caesar created a precedent by speaking on the occasion of his own wife's death, an act which brought him some credit and joined with his bereavement in securing the affection of the masses. They loved him as a man of gentle and sensitive disposition. It turns out Cornelia could serve Caesar even in death. Their daughter Julia was only seven when her mother died, and she became the light of Caesar's life, his true pride and joy. She, like Cornelia, was fated for a happy marriage to a powerful man. And, like Cornelia, doomed to an end that came too soon. Tune in next time for the story of Pompeia and Calpurnia, the last two of Caesar's three and a half wives. The Bonadea scandal, the rise of a dictator, and the dream that could have stopped it all.